As you're taking your seats, why don't you grab your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 6. We're jumping back into the book of Acts, and as we we move along, we're seeing some uh, fascinating things taking place in the life of the early church. And we're seeing, specifically in Acts chapter 6, how the church begins to gain some structure. Some organization is taking place in the life of the church as it begins to rapidly grow. It is necessary for the health and sustainability and the success of the mission of the church that there is some structure put into place to facilitate the growth. We see that here in What we see, though, is that there is a potential danger creeping back into the life of the early church. Ken Hughes, the pastor and the Bible commentator, tells a story of a church in Dallas, Texas. True story. A church decided to split. Each faction of this split filed a lawsuit to claim their rights to the existing building and the property that that building was on. The judge in this case referred the matter back to the denominational heads and the the denominational authorities to decide the the matter. And so a a church uh, council heard the dispute and awarded the property to one of the two groups. During the hearing, the courts learned that the conflict had all begun at a church dinner where a certain elder received a smaller piece of ham than the child who was sitting next to him. Sadly, and I think we can all agree that this is sad, this was all reported in the secular newspaper, and you can imagine how this brought reproach upon the church, and more importantly, how it brought reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ. See, the smallest events sometimes cause the greatest damage in our lives, don't they? Satan has launched against the church multiple, just full-throttle assaults. He has attacked the church in a couple of very important ways, and the church, as we've seen, can't be swayed or knocked off mission by the internal satanic opposition. They will not be pushed around even when sin encroaches upon the church, and we saw that through Ananias and Sapphira. Satan incites this sinful episode, and the church responds with great trust in the Lord, putting sin out of the church, making the church a place of holiness set apart for God. They haven't been deterred even by external threats, by the physical threats from the religious authorities, and they haven't been deterred even by physical abuse. In fact, we saw that they they walked away after being flogged for preaching the name of Jesus Christ, and they counted it a great joy that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. These attacks were fairly blatant, fairly blunt full frontal assaults upon the church. And yet what we see here is that Satan does not quit. In fact, it's often the cleverest of attacks that can cause great damage to the church. And here we see that the greatest opposition the church will face now in Acts chapter six is opposition by distraction. Countless works of God have been destroyed this way. Dissensions begin to creep in, diverting attention and focus away from the goals and from the mission of the church. The whole work is at risk of going up in flames as people are focusing on the the wrong things or on lesser things instead of on the greater things and the main things. 
And Acts chapter 6 describes such a threat against the church. Look at Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. We'll read the first seven verses. It says this, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As we see this subtle attack upon the church, dissension beginning to creep in, distracting from the main purpose, we first must, as we read through this, learn from the the Acts chapter 6 that we ought, ought to identify problems that sidetrack God's people. And every organization and every church faces this problem. There are problems that arise that can sidetrack God's people. You'll notice right in verse 1, it tells us that in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, in these days, the church is very young. The church has just been birthed. It's in, in the infant stages, and they're beginning to rapidly grow. It's this snowball effect. It's just bursting at the seams. There's upwards of 30,000 people right now in the church of Jesus Christ. Probably more. They're increasing in number, and I think that's important just to to make a note of. Notice this. They were clearly taking the call of going to the nations, of proclaiming Jesus Christ incredibly seriously, weren't they? I mean, this church saw their mission. They understood their mission, the seriousness of it, and they were invested in this mission, and God was blessing that. We like to think of it like this. They, They are, and so are we, disciples who are making disciples. That's the objective of biblical discipleship, that we become those who know Jesus Christ, love Jesus Christ, mature in Jesus Christ, and then go and help others do the same. I was uh, thinking about this this week. This is the first time in the book of Acts that Luke uses the word disciple. Disciple is a very important term when you begin to think about the Christian life. It's a, it's a descriptive term that really begins to describe the lifestyle of someone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's a term that's synonymous with the other terms used in Scripture, are believer, and later on in Acts, we're going to see the Christians are, are first called Christians, Christ followers. But disciple has incredible meaning. I was sitting uh, this past weekend with my kids, and my daughter, Karis, who's seven, was reading a book to, to me and to my son, Joshua. Josh is five. And we're sitting there, we're snuggled up on the couch, and Karis is sitting like a teacher in front of us, you know, instructing us with Dr. Zeus. And, uh, 
in the, in the book, it was all about you know, what you wanted to be when you grew up, and you could be this, or you could be that, or you could be this, and I, I'm not going to do all the rhymes for you, okay, but you get the flavor of Dr. Zeus here. You know, you could be a, a, a mountain climber, or you could be a doctor, and I can't rhyme on the spot, but you follow me. And so every, every page my daughter would read, she'd look at us and go, okay, now you guys pick two, pick two. And every page, there was like four on every page. Pick two that you want to be. And so uh, my son would sit and he would wait for me to choose. And so i go, Josh, what do you want to be? He's like, uh, uh, I don't know, what do you want to be, Dad? And I'd be like, well, I want to be a mountain climber, clearly, and a doctor, sure. And he'd go, yeah, yeah, me too, me too. And every once in a while, he'd go first. He'd see something he really wanted to be, and he'd jump on it, and I'd choose something different. And he'd, and he'd go, oh, no, 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 I want to be what Dad, what dad is, is choosing too. And look, just let me soak in this moment, okay? This isn't going to last forever. <laughs> I mean, my son, my son wants to go to school on career day and be a pastor. And I'm like, uh, you might want to rethink that, son. Uh, my daughter tried the same thing. We're like, that's not going to work. It's... <laughs> But you know, you know, the nature of discipleship is, is wanting, desiring, and attempting to be like the one you're following. You know, my, my son, he just, he modeled it for me and you know, I had this all in my mind and I'm watching this in action. My son is looking at me and he's wanting to think like I think. He's wanting to act like I act. He's wanting to choose what I choose. And listen, for the Christian, that's what discipleship is. We, we look to Jesus and we see Jesus and we say, that's exactly what I want to be like. I want to think like Jesus. I want to have an attitude like Jesus. I want to act like Jesus. I want to respond like Jesus. Whatever Jesus wants to be is what I want to be, amen? amen. That's the objective of discipleship. And, and all of these people are called disciples, and you, if you're a follower of Christ, are called disciples too. And the primary objective, and now listen, I, I don't know how well you're doing in this area, but listen, every Christian is called to look at Jesus and say, that's my goal, that's what I'm pursuing, that's what I'm striving after. And so just here's something to think about. You can't be like someone unless you look closely at what they're like, right? How closely are you looking at Jesus? How closely are you, st are you staring at Jesus when you're studying the word of God? I love, I love the concept of discipleship here. And yet what we see, and I, I love, Luke is so raw. You know, we, we have this, in one sense, earlier in the book of Acts, this utopian picture of the church, like everything is amazing. People are getting saved, they're selling property, and you know, they're giving to those in need, not a needy person among them. And then all of a sudden, it looks like the wheels begin to fall off, and Luke paints this picture of the church to remind us, listen, he's, he's not giving a, a biased picture of the church. He wants us to know that the church is a real place with real people who struggle with real sin issues, and, and church are messed up places so often, aren't they? Because we're messed up people so often. And here he just paints this raw picture and he says, look, problems are beginning to creep into the life of the church. And the specific problem here, notice what it says, a complaint has arisen. And the word complaint there is, is a, it can be translated murmuring is happening. You know, people are getting a little bit disgruntled. The word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when referring to the Israelites murmuring against Moses. Remember that? They'd just been delivered. Things were actually really good, but they're beginning to complain. Man, maybe it would have been better if we stayed in Egypt. At least we had good food there. 
I mean, leeks and onions. I don't know what's so impressive about that, but apparently it's really good. You can imagine the situation. The church has been giving so sacrificially. People are coming in. They're selling land and property. They're laying it at the apostles' feet, and they're distributing. The disciples are the apostles. Me, they're distributing to any and every who had need. But all of a sudden, the church is just ballooning. It's just it's just growing so fast. It's an administrative nightmare. Okay, and they can't handle all of the problems and all of the needs among the church. So many people who are in need, and by the way, there's, there's no dispute seemingly that this was not a legitimate complaint. Like it's, It seems as if there's something to what they're saying. The apostles don't go, oh, just stop complaining, all right, everything's fine, you're making a big deal out of nothing. It seems like there's a real issue here. It's important to acknowledge that. The problem was real. What I appreciate, though, is that the problem seemed to make its way to the leaders very quickly. Do you see that? And there's a lot we're going to learn from the leaders in this, you know, the way they deal with this problem. But I just want you to see that this problem makes its way to the leadership incredibly fast. You know, the greatest, one of the greatest dangers that the church faces is not dealing with problems and complaints and murmuring quickly or the right way. You know, there's, and this is true, this is, this is tested over time in countless churches, many some, maybe some of the churches you came from, dissension and factions and disunity creep in so quickly and so subtly, don't they? And before you know it, you know, the murmuring has spread. It's, it's like an undercurrent through the life of the church, and there are groups forming who are angry over here and, and mad about something over here, and, and yet what's left out of the picture so often is that it's not gone through the right channels. And what begins to happen in the life of the church is really sad gossip and slander and malicious talk. And let's just be clear that this kind of response to even legitimate problems, listen, is sin. There's no place for this in the body of Christ and we need to understand that when we come across problems in the life of the church, and there will be problems, we're, in, we're not a perfect church either, but when there are problems in the life of the church and there's personal offenses and things happen, listen, we go to one another, amen? We go to one another and we deal with the, the person. We deal with the problem and the issue and we refuse. There's, there's two parts of this equation I just want to drive home as if we're going to function as a healthy church, when problems arise, and they will, okay, they will, we need to commit that we go to the individuals involved and we deal with the problem head on. That means this, we refuse to gossip, we refuse to go and murmur and create a little factious group over here that's going to cause problems in the life of the church. We refuse to do that. Now, now if, if you can buy into that, that's amazing and praise God and let's celebrate that. But listen, there are two people involved in gossip, isn't there? Here's one of the more neglected sides of this discussion. When somebody comes to you and wants to murmur and complain about somebody else or something else in the life of the body of Christ, what should your response be? If you sit there and listen and give them an ear and encourage them, you know, and we, we live in this culture that loves gossip, don't we? I mean, tabloids, you watch all these you know, entertainment shows, and it's all about getting the dirt on people's lives, and we bring this kind of mentality so often into the church, and we're like, we're like oh, please, stop. Please, don't tell me anymore. No more. 
You see, we need to commit not only to not gossiping ourselves, we need to commit that when somebody comes to us with gossip or slander or malicious talk, we tell people, here's a phrase that was, was said to me um, by another pastor. He said, this is what we, we, I tell my people. I said, we need to be able to say to people, I don't have ears for that. I don't have ears for that. I'm sorry, I'm not gonna listen to this. I'm not gonna hear this. And, if, and here, listen, if somebody wants to do that with you, your obligation, your biblical responsibility is to push that person to go back and talk to the person with whom they have an issue, okay? And so I just think that there's some good principles there that we can think about, and I don't have ears for that. I refuse to gossip. But like I said, there is a legitimate complaint here. There's a real problem happening in the life of the church. What's the problem exactly? Well, Verse 1 kind of makes it very clear. The complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Part of the life of the church was taking care of widows. This has always been a a part of a a true biblical religion from the Jewish roots all the way into the Christian aspect of the faith. Listen, widows were always on the heart of God. God was so concerned with caring for the widows and the orphans, those who were potentially neglected and needy, and we we see all kinds of ways of this happening in the Old Testament, but the church is taking upon themselves the mantle of caring for the widows in the body of Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, and by the way, it is still the responsibility of the church today. But what's happening here is that there, are, there seems to be some segregation happening in the life of the church, maybe some discrimination or potential prejudice. You see, there's these Hellenist Jews. Now, at this time, the whole church is made up of Jews. But there are two different kinds of Jews. There are the Hellenists, or the Grecian Jews, as they've been translated. That is this. Those are Jews who have been scattered because of the diaspora. They've been scattered from the land of Israel. And and, and so they're living abroad, and they're speaking um, probably mainly just Greek. In fact, they've they've been out from the land so long, and they've been away from their Jewish roots in in this sense, the traditional Jewish Hebrew side of things for so long that they don't even speak uh, the the Hebrew dialect anymore. And so they're kind of, in one sense, in, in the culture, we know this in the Jewish culture, there was kind of segregation, and they were actually looked down upon, you know, they're, they're, they're further away from the temple, they're further away from the land. That means they're, they're more unfaithful to the religious traditions that we follow. There's likely not, uh, not some serious, you know, racial or ethnic division taking place here, but probably because of maybe geography or because of simple just, just language issues, there's a separation occurring, and somehow these Greek-speaking Jews feel slighted. They feel like their widows aren't being cared for in the same way. As the money's being dispersed every day to the widows, somehow their widows are just being neglected. They're being forgotten about, or they're not getting what maybe they need. That's kind of what's happening here. But the issue is more than simple cultural tension. This problem had the potential to do greater damage than anybody realized. And the apostles highlight in verse 2 that this actually has the potential to do great damage to the ministry of the apostles. And thereby damaging the, uh, the growth of the church and the success, the effectiveness of the church. Look at verse 2. It says, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
It's not right that we should leave our, our responsibility to preach the word of God and to go and, and practically serve tables. Now, this passage is not making a statement about the value of one act of service over another, okay? It's not saying that, that serving these widows is unimportant or less valuable than preaching the word of God. This passage is creating a distinction between different kinds of callings. You see, ministry is ministry. And in this passage, it actually highlights that, that all ministry is valuable and all ministry is essential. And the apostles no way want to neglect this ministry. They're taking this, this issue very seriously. But what they are saying is this. It's just not their primary ministry, their personal primary ministry. It's not their personal calling. We tend to look at a passage like this and make distinctions about the importance between taking care of widows and teaching God's truth, and we kind of want to elevate one thing over, the another, uh, over another and rank things in some kind of an order of importance. But Luke's point is that God calls different people to different kinds of ministries. The key here lies not in spelling out some level of importance, but listen, but being faithful to the call that you've been given. You see, these men, these apostles, they were given a very specific task, a very personal job. You know, you know they've been given by Jesus Christ himself a job description that they are responsible to fulfill. And here what's happening is that this other great and good need in the church has the potential to distract them from doing what God had primarily called them to do. And so they're making here a statement about their priorities. In fact, they reinforce this. Look at verse 4. You see it there? He says, but, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In other words, they're, they're telling the church and they're, they're, they're teaching the church through this, look, we can't be distracted from our primary duty and our primary duties are very clear. We're called primarily to preach and to pray. This is the job that God has given us and, and you know, that doesn't mean that we don't serve people practically and that doesn't mean we don't help out and do other things, but there, there are certain things as the church is getting so big that we just can't do and if we, we devote our time and effort to those things, we'll neglect this thing over here and this is the thing that we need to be focused on. And by the way, there are lots of other people who can do this other thing. And so they, they say, and the word is very specific. Here's, here's kind of the sense, there's a play on words. He's saying this, look, you serve the physical food, we're gonna serve the spiritual food. And by the way, this, this falls in line with the way that God has designed the leadership of the church to function. Ephesians chapter four tells us that the primary task of the leaders of the church is to preach the word of God and that the goal being to bring the church to a place of spiritual maturity and strength to unfold the riches of the gospel, to take the word of God and to, to make it clear and helpful and to help apply it to people's lives so they can walk out and know what needs to change, to know how they need to grow. It's essential that they are devoted to the word of God as their primary task. And it's essential, look at this, they're coupled together that they're devoted to prayer. And make no mistake about it, those two things go hand in hand. Preaching without prayer is shallow and powerless. 
Prayer is that, that single act of complete dependence upon the Lord. And so you can see here this. Listen, that part, the, the role is to prepare and to study the word of God and to know and understand it. And they pray. They pray, God, would you drive it into my heart? Would you change my life, Lord? And then they pray for the people. God, would you soften their hearts so they might receive the word of God for what it is, your very word. And God, would you use it to, to highlight and to exalt Jesus Christ? And would you change and transform these people by, by your power? You know, this is an acknowledgement on the part of the apostles that it is not their words that change anybody. It is only the power of the Spirit of God who can change the heart. Amen? That is it. And they're just so committed to this. Look, we, we prepare, we preach, and we pray. We prepare, we preach, we pray. You know, water, rinse, repeat. That's kind of their goal. They're just, they're just declaring that this is the supernatural work of God, and so prayer is to be coupled with proclamation. Those who preach must be those who pray. And the people in the, the preparation are to be so bathed in prayer so that God would use it so powerfully. You know, the word that they use there in verse four, it's so key. He, he chooses this, this, this word to describe the total commitment. We will devote ourselves. He's just saying this is, this is the total commitment of our lives. This is the thing that God has called us to give ourselves to, total saturation. And, and here you need to understand that what they're demonstrating, what they're, they're declaring is this. This is a costly endeavor for us. This is all of us invested in this pursuit. And this is so costly, it requires the greatest kind of diligence and persistence. And if we, we don't spend the right amount of time here, everything and everyone will suffer as a result. Paul modeled this, the Apostle Paul, throughout his life. And in, in the book of Acts, he, we're actually going to get here eventually, but Paul tells us that he taught from morning till night for two years straight. I mean, he's teaching so often and so long into the night that people are falling out of windows and dying. You people have it good. <laughs> Did he do other stuff? Did the apostles do other stuff? Yes, this is not, this is not a, a trying to shirk responsibility. Please, you have to see that. They're not saying that we, we shouldn't do other things. They're just saying this is the greatest thing. This is the one thing that we are to be devoted to. And this is, by the way, the pattern that the apostles set and establish for the leadership in the church following them. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, he tells him in 1 Timothy chapter 4, listen to the words that he, he charges Timothy with. He says, command and teach these things. Command and teach. This is your job, Timothy. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And listen to this. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation and to teaching. This is your job, Timothy. I mean, it's so serious. Listen to what he has to tell him. Do not neglect the gift that you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy, we, we commissioned you to this. This is what God has called you to. 
Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Preach. Preach. I mean, if that's not clear enough, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, he says. Do you see the seriousness of this? Total commitment. And by the way, this is not easy. In fact, it's incredibly difficult because there are so many things that can distract you, so many good things that can distract you from this task, and we all experience that in life, don't we? In all of our roles that God has given us, whether you're a a husband or whether you're a wife, whether you're a, a child, whether you're a student, an employee, an employer, there's always good things can that can distract us from the greater things. And it takes great diligence to stay on target and at the task. And people often will ask me, you know, like, is this? I mean, it must be so much fun for you doing ministry. Isn't that so great? Like, yes, all I do is play golf all week and read. Isn't that amazing? Just kidding, I'm kidding. That is not my life, not in any way, shape, or form. But I, I, tell, I, try, and tell, I try and explain, like, well, what's it like, like, preaching every week? Is, I mean, is that hard? And I'm like, I'll just be flat out honest with you. It is incredibly hard. I mean, there are so many demands going on all week long in so many different areas of ministry and life. And then, you know, you got to throw in, here's what I tell people. I say, well, like, what's it like? It's like every week of your life, you're studying for an exam and then taking an exam publicly in front of people. And then you finish, you sleep, and you do it all over again. How many of you like school and taking exams? Okay, but let me just, there's one person in here who likes taking exams, and he's back there on the camera, Steve Fisher. That is sad. <laughs> but I'll tell you this, listen, amidst the hardness and the, the, the difficulty and the challenges, I can tell you this personally, I mean, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I feel this incredible weight and burden every week, every time I open God's word, and sometimes I'm, I'm just, I'm tired, or what, I feel this weight, I have to, I cannot but not do this, and in fact, I can tell you honestly, I love this, <laughs> I love it, I love it, I love it, there's nothing else I could ever do, and I believe with all my heart, God has called me to it. And I know, I know the, the tension and the distractions. With the toil, there is great reward and there is great joy. And they see how this could sidetrack them and distract them from doing what God has called them to and distract God's people from growing the way they need to grow. And so the apostles teach us next, listen, to seek solutions that strengthen God's church. And the focus of this passage is, is not primarily the problem, but it's the solution that they come up with, the way they handle this. And I just want you to notice this, that the apostles are men of courage, they do not back down from conflict, and they go right after the problem. I mean, they deal with it immediately. 
It says in the, the 12, that's the 12 apostles, here's their leadership, they summoned the number of disciples and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God and the serve tables. So what's the solution? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, I love this because here what we see happening is this. The problem is wholesale. It's church-wide. The issue has come to the apostles, and rather than shirk their responsibility, they, it, it appears, and we don't know all the details, it appears they put great thought into this issue, right? It's not like they're coming and going, hey, what do you guys think we should do? No, they've sat down, and they've really probably prayed this through, they've thought it through, and they come back to the church, and they lay out the vision and the, the way forward, but what they do is so, so helpful. See, the problem is, is so big and so massive. They say, we want you to partner with us in this. And so here's what we believe we need to do, and here's what we believe God's calling us to do, and we're going to lead you in this, but you need to participate in this. You need to do the hard work, too, of helping us uh, see this, this solution executed properly. They go after the issue immediately, and we can learn something from that. Division and dissension are often the result of a failure to address a problem immediately. In fact, one of the scriptures, you know, this is a biblical principle for all relationships. Ephesians chapter 4, 25 and 26 says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Then listen to this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and thereby give the devil a foothold. This is a basic biblical principle for all relationships, that letting the sun go down on our anger, not dealing, and you know, the principle there is clear, isn't it? And we, don't, we, we must deal with issues immediately. And where there is you know, sin and where there is relational strife, the issues have to be resolved very quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I mean, I hope you have that principle in your marriage if you're married. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Have you ever let the sun go down on your anger and has it ever gone well for you? Okay. Uh, we, we had committed early in our marriage never to let the sun go down you know, or, or on our anger. Always deal with things before we fall asleep. Now, to be perfectly transparent, that hasn't always been the case. There's been a few times, a few times that I can think of, and only a few, that we did not deal with things the way we ought to have you know, in the proper time, and we went to bed angry, and by the grace of God, we were able to resolve things you know, quickly. Everything's good. Right? But the principle of just making sure Making sure, and here's why, right? Making sure that sin isn't given time to fester. And how true is this in your own life? When there's been a personal offense, how, how easy is it, like, do you ever do this? Do you ever have this person, somebody's offended you, or you know, you've been in an argument and, and you believe you're right, and you just stew on it all day and all night. I mean, how many times do you have to win an argument in your own head? I've done it like hundreds of times. And, but you see, but the problem is this. It fuels our pride. It fuels our selfishness. We begin to want to make sure somebody knows we're right. We begin to want to exact vengeance, and we begin to seek justice because we feel we've been wronged. And you know, just the attitude of Christ is so far gone at that point, isn't it? And spiritually speaking, what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter four is if we allow sin to fester and anger to remain in our heart, listen, it gives the devil a foothold. Why? What's happening there? Listen, the devil loves disunity. 
He loves it when your relationships are in turmoil and in chaos. He loves it when you are so self-centered that you just, you just can't get an issue out of your mind and you want to attack the other person. You want to put them in their place. He loves it when you allow it to fester and, and go to seed and into bitterness. He loves it. Relational unity is so important to God that he requires us to deal with problems immediately. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, in the context of anger, Jesus says this, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Church, listen to what this means for you today, okay? Today, you have walked into church to celebrate the grace of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins that have been granted to you. Listen, here's what you came to celebrate today. Tell me if I'm wrong here, okay? Anybody, any, feel free to object. You came in here and you are celebrating the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus Christ that has reconciled you to the Father. You wronged God, and because of God's love for you through Jesus Christ, because of the way he paid for your sins, because he takes your sin and removes it as far as the east is from the west, you walk in and have relationship unhindered with the God of the universe. Isn't that awesome? Now listen, if you walk into church to celebrate those truths, and yet you have relational strife and bitterness and anger in your heart, unresolved issues, if you know that somebody in your life, maybe it's even in your own home, Maybe it's your marriage. And you know that person has something against you. And you have done nothing to try and resolve that. God says, how can you celebrate the grace and forgiveness and reconciliation that I offer you when you're unwilling to go and do the same with those in your life? And so he listens, this is very serious. He says this, if that's you, and you have come in here to worship me, I don't, I don't want your worship yet because it's not coming from a readied and a proper place. Leave your gift. Don't bring me your gift of worship. Instead, go find that person. You can make that right. There, just, again, can I just be really transparent with you? Like, there have been moments, anybody have those moments coming to church where you, you're like, you, you, you and your wife are just going at it? No? Nobody wants to admit it. I've talked to lots of you before, okay? I know, I know this has happened. You know, you know, it's just, it's been a hectic morning. And you know, and the kids are going crazy in the back seat. And you've been trying to get everybody to the car. And you're running behind again. And you're like, how in the world did this happen? And you're like, this is your fault. No, this is your fault. Clearly, this is your fault. And you're just getting, you know, whatever it is, you're getting after each other. And you walk into church, and then you're like, hey, everybody, good to see you. Praise God we're here to celebrate Jesus Christ. Look, there have been times, there have been, and, I, and I, I have never, I can tell you this, one of my commitments to my wife has been to never get up and preach when there's something between us that's unresolved. I just, I just can't do it. To be perfectly honest with you, I can't do it. And there have been times where we've had the, you know, I mean, it's, it's usually really minor, really stupid, really petty, you know, and we've walked in here and I've had to go and sit down with my wife before the service started and make things right and deal with issues because I can't get up before you. I can't sing a song with a heart pleasing to the Lord unless I'm willing to go and be reconciled to someone whom I have wronged or who has something against me. And I would just commend to you, listen, this is so good. Some of you in here, there's, there's no joy in your life. You feel trapped when you're trying to sing praises to God. It feels disingenuine and that's because it is. 
And God is saying, you need to go. You need to make things right. Relationally, there's no place for this kind of strife and unwillingness to deal with things. God, listen, God did not spare his own son to come and make things right with you. What will you not spare to go and make things right with somebody else? We're going to celebrate communion today. And I just want to say, if, there's, if you're in here and God is speaking to you, God is convicting you about these things, can I urge you, please, I don't care if you have to leave right now and go make a phone call. I don't care if you have to sit with somebody after the service in this room and, and cry and pray and ask for forgiveness. Do what God is calling you to do. Do what God is calling you to do so you can honor him. And this requires a great deal of humility to go and make right what is wrong. And, and sometimes, I understand this too, sometimes you're sitting here saying, well, I've tried that, I've gone, I've done what I can. Look, as, as much as it is possible, be at peace with all men, Paul says in Romans. If you've done your part and you believe it before the Lord, you've done your part, look, then, then in one sense you can wash your hands like, yeah, God, I'm tr- entrusting it to you. But listen, if, if you're sitting here going, I don't feel like I've done my part, I haven't, gone, I haven't done what I need, I haven't gone to the lengths I need to go to, then listen, let the Spirit of God convict you and let the Word of God instruct you, do what you must do. Do what you must do. So they go to the church and they invite them in and they say, here's the solution. Look, we got this real problem on our hands. Now, what I want you to to do, church, is I want you to find seven men, and notice this, there's three qualifications here, of good repute, full of the spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. You know, they're not abdicating their responsibility to lead in this situation, but they're bringing people into the equation to help. They give three basic requirements for the selection of these men. And I just, I can frame it for you like this. You might want to write these down. It's so, so good, okay? Good repute. They must be men of character. They must be men of Christ-likeness, and they must be men of competence. They're of good reputation. They have integrity. You know, people can look at their life, and even, even outsiders could look at their life and say, these are men of integrity and character. You know, they're honest about their dealings and about their conduct and behavior. Uh, they're Christ-likeness. Listen to what it says there. They're full of the Spirit. I mean, these men lived in dependence upon God's Spirit and not on their own strength. They were submitted to Him And they're full of wisdom. You see, what that means is this. They, they knew how to take the truth and to apply it to practical situations. They addressed the plight of the overlooked widows with sanctified common sense. Some of you are like, wow, this is a, quite a standard. I mean, th- these must be some really stand-up men. And, and here's this. One commentator says this. A man full of the spirit, and woman, by the way, is one who is living a normal Christian life. Let this hit you. Fullness of the Spirit is not a state of spiritual aristocracy to which few can attain. Anything less than the fullness of the Spirit for the Christian man or woman is disease of the spiritual life, a low ebb of vitality. Fullness of the Spirit is not abnormal, but normal Christian life. In other words, this isn't a higher standard. It's the normal standard. It's just that there are a few people who are actually striving to attain the standard. Now, many people, when they look at this passage, I just got to address this really quickly, but many people believe that these were the first deacons. 
A deacon is an office. It's a term that means servant in the Greek. And and, uh, the office is instituted by Paul in 1 Timothy as he's adding more bones, more structure to the, the life of the church. And deacons serve in such a way as to free up elders to focus on their priorities of calling and ministry. So you can see the parallels here. And what I would say to you is this, they're not called deacons explicitly in this passage. They are serving and they're called to serve in a specific way. Um, It's likely, I would say, that these seven men are the prototype for deacons. They're not the the same thing. In fact, what we're going to see with Stephen and Philip, two of these men, is that their role goes well beyond that of what we would classify as just a a, a deacon within the church. I mean, they're incredible evangelists and missionaries, and, and just they're teaching and instructing. But I think this is really laying a pattern for what Paul will then build upon into the life of the church. As we look at this solution, um, the apostles model a couple of things. They model both delegation and discipleship. And what we see is that this actually increased their personal ministry. See, it's fascinating when you look at this that these men were to be chosen from among yourselves, from among you. I think that's a helpful reminder that discipleship was happening in the life of the church, that people were being pushed to grow in Christ-likeness. It means that people were being taught. The nature of discipleship, Matthew chapter 28, is this, that we're teaching people to observe all that Jesus has commanded. Ephesians chapter 4, again, Paul makes it very clear that the leadership that God has given to the church, the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers and the shepherds, to do something very specific, listen, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The primary role of the leaders of the church is not to be doing everything, it's to be investing into the people, to be building them up, to be strengthening them, to be shepherding them towards Christ-likeness so that they can do the work of the ministry. There's some spiritual principles that I just want to draw out. I got three of them here. Three spiritual principles that I think are helpful for us to really wrap our arms around. The first is this a greater maturity leads to greater responsibility. Greater maturity leads to greater responsibility. You see what Paul wants people to identify those who are spiritually mature in the Lord. They're standing out as spiritually mature, and then he wants to delegate to them some greater spiritual uh, mature. Or some, excuse me, he wants to delegate to them greater spiritual responsibility. And then that's a helpful principle. I think God wants us all to serve in whatever He's called us to, and this isn't negating um, any ministry at all. But there are certain ministries that have a greater, a heightened sense of accountability, if I can say it that way. That's why James says in James chapter three, "Stop being so many teachers, for theirs is a greater condemnation. Theirs is a greater accountability before the Lord." These are intended, by the way, not to keep you from spiritual growth, but to spur you on to spiritual growth, okay? And he's like, I don't want any more responsibility. I'm not going to grow anymore. Um, Not the right way to think about this. Here's another spiritual principle. Uh, Spiritual progress should be visible and identifiable. It should be visible and identifiable. Don't you love how what, what... Peter is telling them here, is that, look, the, the men you should be finding, you should be able to spot fairly easily. It's kind of the implication here. A lot to think about there. 
for one, I think this, those who get placed in positions of leadership should never be the ones demanding it, but those who are already doing it. Those who are already living like Christ. These men hadn't been looking for a promotion, okay? But their lives and their conduct had made them the clearest candidates for it. Let me give you one more spiritual principle here. A generous spirit leads to multiplied opportunity. A generous spirit leads to multiplied opportunity. You know, I, I think the apostles model this so well. So often, the fear of many people in leadership is that in giving away ministry, it will actually cost us. And there's a similar to a pride, you know, that's my ministry and, and I've given my life to this. And yet, what God is so often doing is saying, no, 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 you need to let it go. You need to allow other people to come in and do the work of the ministry. And in letting it go and being generous with the ministry, there will be multiplied opportunities. Other people who God has gifted will be able to serve in places. You will be freed up to then go and pursue other areas where God might be calling you to serve. And the apostles could have been looking at the situation going, well, I mean, we, we are definitely the most spiritually qualified men in the room and we, should, we could do this the, the best, you know. I mean, we could do it better than anybody here and they could have said, we're just gonna keep this to ourselves and yet that's not what they model. They model this picture of humility and saying, we want to give this away. We want people to be involved. We wanna see God move and the work of the, the ministry spread across the back of God's people. And this is the way the body of Christ was designed to function. Every part playing their part. They're to choose seven. Did you notice that in the text? Why seven? Well, the answer isn't super spiritual. It's, it's fairly simple, actually. The, the Mishnah said that the, in Jewish towns, seven men were required to conduct business. And so this was a very intentional and practical decision. This is the way that they could best serve these people in the community that they lived in. They paid attention to the cultural context that they were in, and, and the ministry was going to be taken care of in that way. Their solutions were all about strengthening God's church. All about building up the body of Christ and seeing God's people do the work of the ministry. This is the objective of the church in many ways. And finally, as we look at this just really quickly, they celebrate, we need to celebrate results that spread God's truth. Remember, all of this, all that was happening, the dissension and the division, the distraction that Satan had thrown into the mix was all placing the objective and the mission of the church in jeopardy. I mean, this had, you have to think of this strategically from Satan's vantage point. He's seen this thing just blow up in, a, in an amazing way, and he wants to stop it in its tracks. And so he tries to assault one more time and to break apart what God had unified together. And he knows that if he can disunify them, if he can fragment them, that they're going to become less effective in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. But together, there is strength. I love this. You know, verse 5 tells us and what they said pleased the whole gathering. That's a miracle in and of itself, right? Really? They gave a suggestion, and the whole church was on board. It's like, so good. <laughs> You'll get there. 
Everybody said, this is a fantastic idea. Please, the whole gathering. And so they chose seven men, and we won't go into all these men. In fact, only two of them, two of them, you gotta see this too, were paving the way. This is, what the, this is what's happening here. They're paving the way for the gospel to go out beyond the walls of Jerusalem into the surrounding uh, 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 pagan society. And Philip and Stephen are two of the top here, and we're gonna see that they're gonna come into play in the next couple of chapters. But the other five men, we never hear anything about ever again in the Bible. But this is such a beautiful picture. There's unity now. They're back together. They're on the same page. God's working to bring the church back to a place of fruitfulness and effectiveness. I want to just point out one thing, and I won't, I'll spare you repeating all the names. But when you look at all these names, here's what I want you to see. Every one of these names are Greek names. Everyone. Who is being neglected? The Greek widows. See, the church unanimously chose seven Greek Jews, Grecian Jews. So why is that so important? Listen, because it shows the love and the care and the body of Christ. You know, they didn't feel like, you know, in so many of our churches and contexts, we'd be like, well, we need to make sure there's equal representation on this committee, right? And we need to have you know, at least three Hebrew-speaking Jews and three Grecian Jews, and then we'll just flip a coin for the seventh one. Now, the Hebrew Jews, they're, it, 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 you can, we can assume, but here's what you have to imagine is happening. The Hebrew Jews are going like, I, I can't believe that they feel like they've been left out, that they've been offended, and, and they're part of the body of Christ, and we love them, and we want to do everything we can to make them sure and secure in the fact that they are a part of us. They're not separate from us. You know, there's no divisions in this body, and so what we can do, let's do our part. Let's get seven Grecian Jews, and let's make sure that they're the ones who get to now choose how the dispersion is taking place and we'll just entrust it all to them like what an act of humility and service just incredible condescension doesn't it just so remind you of Jesus Christ lowliness wanting to serve and here's here's what's helpful to know too these Hebrew speaking Jews they were in the majority they could have chosen a different mix but they didn't and how mu this must have just fused them together, welded them together as a, a growing, fledging church. And they brought these men to the apostles, and the apostles approved them. They, they th the decision was great, and they laid hands on them. And that's all showing just, listen, the laying of hands is showing solidarity, unity, a confirmation of moving forward with the same spirit. And when the church is unified and organized, just look at what happens. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And God is just moving in such a powerful way. Priests are getting saved. Satan's like, oh, tried and I failed again. No more distractions, no dissension, more focused ministry, and more fruitful ministry. That's what happens when the body of Christ gets structured, unified, deals with distractions. Satan would love to keep us distracted, church. He'd love to knock us off our mission. He'd love to have our focus diverted from making disciples onto all kinds of other things, sometimes even good things. 
But where gospel truth is celebrated, distractions are mitigated. And here, verse 7, Luke wants to highlight this simple fact. The gospel cannot be stopped where God's people submit to him, follow him faithfully, and stay focused on what he's called them to do. How do we do this? How do we do this week after week after week? Well, we keep celebrating. We keep celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. We keep our mind focused on what's most important, on the heart of all that we do. We keep our focus on the cross. We keep our focus on God's grace. We keep our focus on what keeps us unified, amen?